the uh, doctrine of the atonement. Uh, and basically what we mean by that is simply uh, what Christ does for us on the cross. And if there's anything that we want to know uh, in the Christian life and to better our, our life as a Christian is an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Uh, we sing about it. Uh, we read books about it. There's many books I've been read, uh, written about it. Um, there are many different theories out there of what actually happened on the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And one of the things we considered last Lord's Day is we confess that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God for us. On the cross, that Christ satisfies the wrath of God. And what we mean by that is simply this, uh, that there was a debt that we owed to God. When, when Adam sinned against God, he sinned against an infinite person, an eternal person. And his punishment was what? Was death, which for us means uh, a separation from God, uh, uh, an infinite debt, because we sinned against an infinite one. Uh, just as if someone murdered someone else, uh, what does their punishment need to be? It needs to be life, where they give their entire life to uh, the legal system, which is jail, or they have to go on death row and, uh, and uh, take their own lives, or the government or whoever takes their lives. Uh, similarly, with Adam, when he died, he sinned against an infinite God, therefore the punishment was eternal hell. Uh, that is our state in Adam if Christ never came and never redeemed us. How does Jesus Christ satisfy this infinite debt that we owe? Well, many people will say that, well, he satisfies the infinite debt that we owe because he lived a perfect life. And it is true that Christ lived a perfect life for us. Uh, many say that, well, he satisfied the, death, the infinite debt that we owe because uh, the wrath of God is poured out on him on the cross. Uh, we saw a little bit that that notion of the of the atonement, I think, is false. But we see the the satisfaction of Christ in which he removes the infinite debt that we owe to God. He satisfies divine justice by how? By offering himself. He satisfies the infinite debt that we owe by offering his infinite person. Although he dies via his humanity, his humanity is hypostatically united to his divine personality. So what I mean by that is one drop of Christ's blood is enough, is sufficient enough, is more than enough to save the entire world, if God so pleased. Some of the Puritans would say that if if there was an infinite amount of worlds that were created, one drop of Christ's blood would be a sufficient enough to save every single person in, that infinite, or in those infinite worlds. Why is that? Well, because Christ is a divine person. He is the God-man, not the man-God. So, <clears throat> we looked at that last uh, Lord's Day, where Jesus satisfies the justice of God because he offers himself. And by Christ offering himself, what is he doing? He's showing the perfect demonstration of divine justice. People in hell are demonstrating divine justice. 
But by Christ offering himself, he's demonstrating a more better way to satisfy divine justice. He gives a payment that is more than what was required, which is himself. That is where we are to locate the satisfaction of Christ. Why is it that we can escape hell from all eternity? Because the eternal one became flesh and died for us. That is why. But there are some things about the atonement that are, I think, unbiblical and can be borderline, if not heretical. We confess what is called penal substitutionary atonement. What that simply means is Jesus Christ came in our place and he paid the penalty of sin for us. In our place, he took uh, all of what was uh, required uh, for us to be freed from under the condemnation of the law. But a lot of times when people talk about penal substitutionary atonement, they want to stretch it out to where there's, there's something going on. Lord, Jesus Christ is not merely dying for us, but there's sort of a break in the Trinity. There's even a break in Christ's person. And what people normally say concerning Christ on the cross is that on the cross, the Father turns his face away from the Son. It's commonly what's said, or something to that nature. That the Father is angry. He's, he's so mad that he must take out his anger on someone. And rather than taking it out on us, Jesus moves us out the way, and the Father punches, up, punches his son rather than punching us. <laughs> so the, this evening, the doctrine that I want to raise is we must deny that the Father willfully and angrily turns his face away from the Son, as well as any and all understandings of the atonement where the Father wrathfully acts personally toward the Son. Once again, we must deny that the Father willfully and angrily turns his face away from the Son, as well as any and all understandings of the atonement where the Father wrathfully acts personally toward the Son. First, let's answer what is meant by those who believe the Father turned his face away. Where are, we getting, where are they getting this notion of the atonement from? Uh, generally, proponents of such a doctrine will ground this language in what they term Christ's cry of despair or cry of the damned or cry of dereliction. And if you want to turn there, you can. We'll be in this text, and we won't get to it till the very last point. But in Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, 46, uh, we read of this saying on the, from the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all, I'm sure, know of that verse. We've all heard of that verse. Very mysterious verse. Um, but it is here that proponents of saying that the Father turned his face away will argue that Christ at this moment, when he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that he is despairing. Because the Father at this moment is abandoning him. The Father is turning his face away 
from him. The eternal love that the Father has had for Christ becomes a hatred of Christ on the account of the sins imputed to him. So it goes from before the cross, love the Son. While Christ is on the cross, hate the Son. And then back to loving the Son. They therefore argue that in addition to the social abandonment and sufferings, social abandonment meaning his disciples abandoned him, um, and the sufferings that he, that he uh, bore on his body, the nails and, and the beatings, there is a real spiritual forsakenness or spiritual wrath proceeding from the Father toward the Son. And because of the spiritual forsakenness and this spiritual wrath from the Father to the Son, Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, in addition to social abandonment, in addition to the pains that he feels on his body, there's something internal going on, spiritual, where the Father is turning his face away from the Son. Let me give you a few examples of what these men are saying, and uh, let me tell you that these men are not heretics at all. Uh, these men are good Christian men, but I think that they got this very, very wrong. And one of these things are heresy. John Piper says this, First, this was a real forsakenness. That is why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, means he really did. He really did. He is bearing our sin. He bore our judgment. The judgment was to have God the Father pour out his wrath on us, and instead he pours it out on him. And that necessarily involves a kind of abandonment. That is what wrath means. He gave him up to suffer the weight of all the sins of all those people and the judgment of those sins. And we cannot begin to fathom all that this would mean between the Father and the Son. To be forsaken by God is the cry of the damned. And he was damned for us. That's an important note there. So he used these words because there was a real forsakenness. So John Piper wants to say that there is a real forsakenness because this wrath is being poured out on the Son. And because there is a real forsakenness, Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tabidi, and I'm not going to pronounce his last name, but his name is Tabidi. Um, he says, this is the deepest, darkest part of Jesus' suffering. Social abandonment was horrible, but came from outside. Emotional desertion was painful, but only inside Jesus. This spiritual forsakenness, spiritual wrath from the Father, occurs deep down in the very Godhead itself. We dare not speculate, lest we blaspheme. But something was torn in the very fabric of the relationship between the Father and the Son. From all eternity, Jesus lived with the Father. And not just with the Father. All that's the Lord Jesus has ever known, the loving, approving, shining face of his Father. At three o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the Father turned his face away, and the ancient, eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken as divine wrath rained down like a million Sodom and Gomorrahs. In the terror and agony of all, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> I don't say this often, but that's heresy. And let me tell you why. What he's saying is there's a separation deep down in the God self 
Godhead itself. Where you no longer have a trinity. You have a father there, you have a son here. The ancient eternal fellowship was ripped apart. Heresy. John MacArthur. Christ died in our place and in our stead, and he received the same outpouring of divine wrath in all of its fury that we deserve for our sin. It was a punishment so severe that a mortal could spend all eternity in the torments of hell, and still he have not have begun to exhaust the divine wrath that was heaped on Christ at the cross. This was the true measure of Christ's sufferings on the cross. The physical pains of crucifixion, dreadful as they were, were nothing compared to the wrath of the Father against him. In that awful, scarce hour, it was as if the Father abandoned him. Though there was surely no interruption in the Father's love for him as a son, well, he doesn't want to deny or say that there is a break in the Trinity, thank God. God nevertheless, nonetheless turned away from him and forsook him as our substitutes. So whether or not there's a break within the Trinity, there is some sort of abandonment going on. The basic premise from what these men are saying is that whatever sufferings the damned would have experienced in hell, Jesus suffered on the cross, exhausting the vengeful fury of the Father, being damned in our place. The very same sufferings that we would have received in hell, Jesus Christ receives that hell on the cross. That's what these men are saying, the basic premise of it. And because of that, there is some sort of uh, forsakenness going on. For the Father turns his face away from the Son. So I want to do just two things this evening. First, I want to answer the problem with the belief that Jesus experienced the self-same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell. And secondly, answer the question, what is meant by Christ's cry of dereliction on the cross? First, let's answer the problem with the belief that Jesus experienced the self-same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell. As I noted, many believe that when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that Jesus is experiencing the same sufferings of hell that you and I would have experienced. There is an exchange of sufferings going on where all of the hell, all of God's wrath and anger is directed at the Son. And the reason why we can escape hell is because Christ experienced our hell on the cross. I even heard a pastor say that on the cross, Jesus experienced our judgment day. What are the problems with such concept? First, this views the perfection of Christ's satisfaction as having personally suffered what the sinner would have been required to suffer rather than grounding the perfection of Christ's satisfaction in the dignity of his person. In other words, many will say the reason why Jesus satisfies the wrath of God is because the wrath of God was poured out on the Son. That is why he satisfies the wrath of God, and that's it this invisible, hard-to-explain, metaphysical, spiritual wrath being poured out upon the Son. And because the Son exhausts that wrath, therefore we do not have to go to hell. It is as if every sin that you and I have ever committed was storing up some amount of wrath. So Every time you sin, there's a, there's a jar next to God, and there's this wrath that's being built up, being built up, and then at 3 o'clock, on the cross, this wrath that we have stored up because of our sin is poured out on the Son. 
That is why he cries out to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus exhausts the wrath of God because the wrath of God is being poured out on him. That is where they view the value of Christ's satisfaction. However, this is not the way the Reformed traditionally have spoken of the satisfaction of Christ. As we have seen last Lord's Day, we've, the value of Christ's death is found in the free act where the son, uh, of the Son, whereby the Father is more pleased with the Christ's obedience than he is displeased with the sins of humanity. Because Jesus is the Son of God, his death is of infinite value and worth. Christ is able to satisfy the infinite justice of God because he offers his infinite self. Just as if you were in debt for a million dollars. How can you get out of debt for a million dollars? You've got to pay a million dollars, but if you have the APR, you've got to pay more than a million dollars. That's how you get out of debt. Well, similar with us. We get out of debt with God the infinite debt that we owe, because Christ offers an infinite self. And the reason why we are freed from the condemnation of God is not because Jesus suffers the punishment we would have received in hell on the cross, but because his sacrifice is a perfect demonstration of the justice of God. Charles Hodge makes this point clear, quote, This perfection of the satisfaction of Christ, as already marked, is not due to his having suffered either in kind or in degree, what the sinner would have been required to endure, but principally to the infinite dignity of his person. Christ doesn't make satisfaction for us because he suffers our hell on the cross, but he satisfies divine justice because he offers his infinite self. Francis Turretin, Nor yet, moreover, could you rightly say that he entered the place of the damned or was damned. He could indeed bear the punishments of those deserving to be damned, but not of the damned, so that he entered into the infernal place prepared for them, from which no one can return. Or that he was devoted to eternal punishment, because the eternity of the punishments we deserve was compensated abundantly in Christ by their weight and extremity. Here, Dr. Hodge and Francis Turretin are in agreement with one another. We aren't to say that Christ on the cross was damned to the fires of hell, nor are we to attribute the worth of his sacrifice to that. Can we say that Christ was cursed of God? Yes. Christ was indeed cursed of God. As Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs, who was hung on a tree. But is Christ damned by God? There's a difference there. Is he forsaken by God? Is he alone? all to himself. He has made sin, but he was never once was a sinner. He surely was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, as Isaiah 53.4 says. Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And people want to read those verses and say that on the cross, the Father is personally striking his son. Saints, if that's how we are to view what's happening on the cross, then it is what many say that is causing with child abuse. They say that the father on the cross is striking his son. 
is not what traditionally penal substitutionaries would affirm. As Herman Bobbing would say, that is a pagan deity. That is an angry God who just wants blood. The father doesn't willfully and angrily beat his son on the cross instead of us. But he hands him over to receive the penalty of the law, which is what? Death. And I think one of the biggest errors that good and well-meaning Christians make is they want to push the sufferings of Christ on the cross way too far. It's not enough to affirm that Christ died to satisfy divine justice. That's not enough. But they want to add that the Father directly inflicts torment on the Son. Why can't we just say that Christ died for our sins and that's it? Why do we have to take it a step further and say, but no, on the cross, the Father is forsaking the Son? Why can't just death be enough? Why can't suffering be enough? Why, there, why does there have to be some sort of separation or forsakenness? So we can't say Christ satisfies the wrath of God because on the cross, he went to hell for us. Rather, Christ satisfies the wrath of God because of who he is. Another problem with saying that Jesus experienced the self-same sufferings that we would have experienced in hell is this puts despair into Christ and fundamentally misunderstands Christ's cry at the cross. Many will say that on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's at a point of despair where he has no hope. There's a loss of hope within Christ because the Father forsakes him. That is why he cries out. Not only is this unbiblical, but it denies the sinlessness of Christ. One of the chief punishments of the damned in hell is despair. Jesus says in Mark 9, verses 47 and 48, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And he says in verse 48, Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. We read of this worm in Isaiah 66, 24. And they shall go out and look on the body, dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms should not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. Here we see in hell, and this terrified the you-know-what out of me when I was studying it. In hell, there is a worm that the damned will be afflicted with for all eternity. Now, what is this worm? Well, it simply refers to one's conscience. Just as if one murdered someone, if they're truly remorseful over their crime, their conscience, day by day, hour by hour, is going to nag at them while they're in their prison cell. And as their conscience nags at them, and as they, can, and as they contemplate what they did, why did they do it? What's going to build up inside of them? despair because they know that they will never get out they will never be freed in hell men's conscience will always eat at them they know that there is a god and they know that they greatly sinned against him in hell there will never be a day when the damned are comfortable 
they will never be at peace. For the worm of their conscience will continually afflict them. They will constantly be reminded that they are a sinner in Adam. That they have disobeyed a holy God. And this ultimately leads to despair for the damned in hell. For they know that there is no hope for them. They know that they cannot have God as their blessedness and reward. There is no Sabbaths in hell. None. There is no rest. Constant pain. Not just physically, from a material fire, but mentally. The worm of the conscience will continue to eat at them and they will despair for all eternity. Friends, I ask you, is this the same punishment that Christ is afflicted with on the cross? If it's a cry of despair, if it's a cry of the damned, is that what Jesus is crying out? Is he despairing like the damned despair in hell? No. If on the cross Christ despairs like the damned do in hell, then Christ would need a Savior. If Christ underwent despair like the damned, then he would cease to be the eternal Son of God. But this is also contrary to the way Christ spoke of the cross. He says in Matthew 16, 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. John 12, 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 14, After Jesus has spoken of his death and the many things that will happen leading up to his death, he says in uh, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus, and consider his words at his trial, he remains silent until he's asked if he's the Messiah. And what does he say? He says confidently, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And lastly, Hebrews 12, too, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew exactly what was awaiting him. That after the cross, there will be a throne. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he knew the outcome. And being actually abandoned by his father wasn't something that was awaiting him. Being really abandoned by his father was not something that was awaiting him. Christ didn't survive the cross. He endured the cross. He was confident in who he is and not what others thought of him. Think about that. If you're, think of your, if you're a Roman soldier or a Jew and you're looking upon the cross and you're seeing Jesus, curses everyone who's hung on the tree, and they say that this man is cursed of God. But Jesus knows that he's not cursed of God. For he is the beloved son of God, whom his father was well pleased. So we see that Christ could have not experienced our hell on the cross because Christ never despaired on the cross. He never entered into the place of the damned. 
which leads to what does the cry of dereliction mean? This is the two points are kind of hinging on what the cry of dereliction means. What do we mean, or what does Christ mean when he says in Matthew 27, 46, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very mysterious words indeed. Like I've already noted, many interpret Christ's cry as the Father is forsaking the Son or turning his face away from the Son. Many will say that on the cross, Christ in his humanity is being forsaken by God. Let me give you two reasons why I don't think that that is the best way to view this cry. First, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although he may feel that, he says those particular words for a specific reason. Although he may feel like he's forsaken, he's saying these words for a specific reason. Here we see that when Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting scripture. And what is he quoting? He's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. It's not something that Jesus just dreams up, but he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, David is not expressing his sorrow that God has forsaken him, but his seeming forsakenness. David sees all that's around him, and it seems like God has forsaken me. But even in this psalm, David will praise God for not forsaking him. Here is what he says in verse 24 in Psalm 22. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted, affliction of the afflicted. And hear this. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Did you catch that, saints? Amen. David says that in his affliction, God has not despised him. And God has not turned his face from him, but he has heard his cry. Amen. Here David is saying, although it seems like God has forsaken me, all the externals will say that God has forsaken me. But in reality, my God hears me. My God has not forsaken me. And if you read the latter half of the psalm, you'll see that the psalm ends in victory. It, it, it ends in the, in the justification of the Messiah. That salvation has come. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are to interpret his cry in light of the context of Psalm 22. When the Jews and whoever else, when they're standing and they're seeing the crucified Savior, they say that this man is damned by God. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The way the rabbis would talk or teach others to, to memorize psalms is they would quote the first line and the people would say the rest. So for example, if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, 
And the rest of you, that is your cue to say the rest, but that's what you do. You say the rest of the, of the song, right? That is how many of the rabbis taught others to memorize the Psalms. So when Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, the Jews hear that. And they know exactly what he's doing. They know exactly what he's saying. But more importantly, they know the context of Psalm 22. That Psalm 22 is not speaking of a man who is forsaken. But it's speaking of a man who God has heard his cry. And there will be justification. It will end in victory. Although it looks like Jesus has been forsaken by God, and I'm not going to deny that there is a form of forsakenness there. And the way that we are to interpret that forsakenness is the father hands his son over to die. He doesn't protect his son from death. But there's not a tear in the relationship between the father and the son. And there's not no... The father turning his face away from the son. There is, although it looks like Jesus has been forsaken by God, nevertheless, as Psalm 22 says, the father has not hid his face, but he has heard his cry. Jesus' cry on the cross is ultimately a cry of victory. He's prophesying on the cross that I am fulfilling Psalm 22 in your midst. So is the Father turning his face away? No. Because the Father, God does not turn his face away from David in Psalm 22. Much less would he turn his face away from his only beloved son who was suffering the most excruciating pain and agony that anyone could ever suffer in this world. Jesus never despairs that his father has abandoned him. Rather, he is reassured that his father is with him in his sufferings. That's why he even says, my God, my God. He beholds God. He's still his God. And ultimately, what is Christ doing? He's expressing one of the great themes in the whole Bible. That salvation always comes by way of suffering. That's what Psalm 22 is all about. Through suffering, salvation. What does Christ preach here? Through the sufferings of the cross, the salvation for the elect. And lastly, saying on the cross that the Father turns his face away contradicts the rest of what Christ says on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Christ was damned, If he is forsaken by the Father, then wouldn't he say, Father, forgive me? If he is paying the penalty of sin insofar as he goes to hell, then shouldn't he say, Father, forgive me, not them? He tells the thief, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. These are words of confidence, not of despair or abandonment. But I think the ultimate and final nail to the coffin of those who think that the Father turned his face away from the Son is found in John 16, verses 31 and 32. Consider these words from Jesus. Jesus answered them, 
Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He's speaking of his sufferings on the cross, and he says, all of you will abandon me, but I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. This is pre-crucifixion. He knows that he will not be abandoned by his Father. Truly and ultimately, and really, the Father will not turn his face away from his Son. But on the cross, we say that there never was a time when the Father was more pleased with his Son, because on the cross, it shows, it highlights the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. So in closing, friends, what have we learned? It's improper to say that the Father turns his face away. Why? Because the context of Psalm 22 doesn't allow it. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a victory psalm. Where the Father has not turned his face away from David, but he has heard his sons cry, and he is with them. And what we see is that if you want to push that the father turns his face away from the son, then you have to say two things. Ultimately, that there is a break in the Trinity or this. Or if you say the father turns his face away from the son and his humanity, here's the problem you have there. The father and the son are not at odds. The father's wrath is the son's wrath. The father's justice is the son's justice. So that means that if the father turns his face away from the son with respect to his humanity, then you have a separation in the person of Christ, where he's no longer divine, but now he's human. That's called Nestorianism, a heresy. So I think the consistent view is to say that there never was a time when the son was without his father. There never was a time when the father was without his son. Did the father abandon his son? We can say yes with respect to handing him over to die. But not in the sense of turning his face away. Jesus was never damned on the cross. He didn't suffer our sins. or He didn't pay for our sins that we would have suffered in hell. He didn't go to hell for us. But if he did then the father would have to turn his face away. We can be penal. We can say that uh, Jesus took our sin without those other notions of the cross. And what that means for us saints is that when we are in despair, we aren't to think that the father has turned his face away from us. If we are in the son, then the father will not abandon us. But in your cry, when you are crying the loudest, the Father will hear you. Because you are united to his Son by faith, by the Spirit. Let's pray.